Hey, dear listeners, John and Jason here to let you know that the Snark Tour will be happening again at 2016, this coming November. Are you excited, Jason? I'm super excited. I'm excited because I'm going to get to meet a load of people who normally I only get to interact with on the internet, and many of them I don't even get to interact with. And so the idea that some of them are going to join us as we tour around the Holy Land and have a look at our Tanakhs and the context of the land and the food and the people that we're talking to... That's mind-blowing for me. I can't wait. The last Tanakh tour was just so much fun. Rabbi Tavia Singer will be with us as well as almost other special guests. So, Jono, someone's sitting at home and they're saying to themselves, I'd really like to find myself on the bus this year with all of my friends and my new friends and my old friends learning all about the Tanakh and all this cool stuff. How do I do it? Yeah, well, you've got to go to the website. Go to truth2letteru.org. You'll click on Tanakh Tour of Israel 2016. That will take you to all the necessary details. You will leave a deposit and that will secure your place on the bus with us this November. you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth to you.org that's truth number two letter you.org joining me is the director of education and counseling for jews for judaism in canada that's jews for judaism.ca the website jews for judaism.ca welcome back to the program rabbi michael skoback it's so good to be back it's been a long that's time wonderful it's been way too long the last thing that we did uh, it was, of course, uh, we investigated the alleged 365 Messianic prophecies, didn't no, we, in, in the, the last Tanakh? thing we did was we went back to Woodstock. <laughs> oh, we did! <laughs> we reminisced about Woodstock. People can hear that on, on uh, our other program, Israel News Talk Radio. The program's called Israel on My Mind, where Rabbi <laughs> Skobak <laughs> laments his, his uh, mistakes of his youth. But you'll have to go there to listen to that. I'll put a, actually, you know what? I'll put a link on this on this post. But before that, we did the 365 Messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament. Each and every one of them, 365 listeners can find that very popular series on truthtoyou.org. But today we begin a new series. Michael, what is it? So we're going to do, hopefully, God willing, the Book of Psalms, which How is about that? Uh, 150 Psalms. chapters. 150 chapters. I think we should. our motto should be keep calm. Read a psalm. <laughs> I love think? it. You like that? Keep calm, read a psalm. Yeah, as you say, 150 chapters uh, divided into five books. Not many people know that. I was surprised when I found that out. Five books consisting primarily of what? Praises, poetry, prayers. Well, the Hebrew word for psalms, because obviously the, the, the word psalm is not a Hebrew word. No. The Hebrew word for the book is tehillim. Now, hang on a second. Right there. Where does the word psalms come from? And why does it begin with a P? With <laughs> a P. That's, that, you have to blame the English for that. It's interesting because the Hebrew tehillim is the plural for tehillah. Tehillah is probably the simplest and, and best translation would be praise. And so tehillim literally means praises. And obviously the book is focusing on praising God praises of God. How that became Psalm, I have no idea. I have no idea. If anyone could fill us in on that, we would love to read that in the comments section because praises obviously would have been a much better translation and then we could have justified the P, but Psalms beginning with P, don't understand. I'd love to know about that. If any listeners can fill us in, Michael. That would be great. <laughs> and so these Psalms, and it's, a, it's, a, it's actually interesting that you have probably of any book in the Bible, this has the most chapters, if I'm not mistaken. No other book comes close to 150 chapters. And uh, mostly they were composed by David, King David. Mm -hmm. um, in many cases, his, the, these, they're songs, really. These are praises, songs 
that he wrote poems, and they usually related to events that were taking place in his life. Mm -hmm. Uh, The book does include some poetic songs that were written by earlier people. Uh, We'll look at those. But the real focus of the book is looking at God's involvement in every aspect of life, relating to the full spectrum of human needs and emotions, everything from joy to fear to sorrow to pain to anguish to anxiety and despair and hope and confidence and exhilaration and frustration and yearning and awe and serenity, everything. And that's why the book has become so popular. It's such a rich source of scripture for our prayers because David really experienced everything and he wrote these very moving poems to really reflect on uh, how his relationship with God uh, both got him through these experiences and led him to thank God for all the successes he had. And so the book became so popular primarily because every human being relates to it personally uh, as a source for their own personal prayers. Many of these songs, by the way, were sung by the Levites in the temple mm-hmm. to musical accompaniment. And the, the music certainly enhanced the emotional content of the, of the psalms. Um, now, can I, can I interrupt you there? I think you have mentioned before that the Psalms, uh, and, you, and you just alluded to this, they're so popular because they so reflect the human condition uh, that people can find uh, strength when they read that, oh, well, David went through this and, 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 uh, and this is what he, and he writes about it here. Is that why do you think it's included? I've always found it fascinating that the, uh, the Bible that you find in the hotel rooms, the Gideon Bible, it has the whole of the Christian New Testament, but then it just slips in there, Psalms and Proverbs. Is that why Psalms is there, do you think? I wouldn't be surprised. I think mm. that, you know, it, it's, um, you know, of all the books in the Old Testament, you know, it's probably the most easy for non-Jewish people to relate to because it's not really... Uh, you know, aside from several of the Psalms, it's not really a parochial book. It's a very mm-hmm. uh, profound, um, moving human book. I mean, it, it speaks in the most primal, basic human needs and concerns. And I think that it's, uh, you know, so rich in terms of material that any person can relate to. So I think, and again, because it's so, uh, it lends itself so much to, to being prayed. You know, it's one thing to read the Bible. Another thing to turn the the Bible into prayers, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov used to say that about his own teachings. He said he didn't recommend that the people only study his Torah teachings, but he, he recommended people turn them into prayers, that people actually use the, the, the um, ideas to become the foundation of prayers. And I think that's so easily related to, and of course, Proverbs, which is, not, we're not going to cover that now, uh, you know, very, very uh, sort of easy to relate to maxims and uh, observations of wisdom mm-hmm. for how to live. Um, so those books, I think, are just so accessible that maybe that's why they're put into the uh, into these uh, you know Christian scriptures uh, mm-hmm. that are given out. Um, but you know, aside from the fact that you know David has been through everything, through sickness and through you know, being betrayed and danger and, you know, depression, everything. Mm. He was also the king of the people. And there's a special idea that the king is the heart of the nation. And somehow there's not just a connection between David's experiences 
because we all relate to them, but he really is every person. He really is as the representative of the people. Um, you know, he's the heart of a nation. Mm. And so his faith and his devotion that he had through, through these experiences can be inherited by us if we embrace his songs. There is a really beautiful story. I think it's told in many different cultures, but I heard it first from a good friend of mine, Robert Moshe Weinberger in New York. Uh, there's a story that's told of this uh, contest that was held in England, I guess before they had uh, television and movies. But, you know, people at one point, they would get together and for entertainment, they would recite poetry. So there was a poetry reading contest in London. And uh, at the end of the contest, all the finalists got up and they had to read uh, the 23rd Psalm. And there was uh, one young man who was the obvious winner. His, his rendition of the psalm was perfect. You know, he, he read it with perfect diction and perfect cadence. And, you know, it just sounded so beautiful the way he read this psalm. And after he finished, the whole audience arose and applauded. And before they, they awarded uh, the awarding ceremony where they gave the prizes, there was an old Eastern European Jewish man got up and he called out and he said to the judges, would it be okay if I had a chance to recite the psalm? And, you know, everyone was amused because he didn't have a beautiful rich British accent. He was an old mm. Jewish guy with an old Yiddish accent. And so they, you know, they even thought they'd have some fun at his expense. So they said, fine, you can go up and recite the psalm. And he, in a very heavy accent, uh, he went through this capital, this chapter of Tehillim, you know, which for people that take the book seriously, it's a very well-known chapter, chapter 23. Mm. Mm. Uh, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. And I, you know, uh, he restores my soul and I... Mm. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he, he recited this in his broken English with a heavy accent. But as he was saying it, this psalm, as he was reciting it, uh, incredible hush fell over the crowd. And many of the people were moved to tears. Mm. And after the prize was awarded to the young man, he followed the old man out into the street. And he said, Rabbi, you really deserve the prize not me. And the old rabbi says, no, not at all. He says, I wasn't competing. You did a great job and you read the psalm beautifully and it belongs to you, the prize. So the young man continued and asked, but rabbi, please explain to me why it was that when I finished reading the psalm, the audience cheered. But when you concluded, many people were crying. Mm. So the old Jew replied, the difference between you and me is that I know the shepherd. Mm. And that's really, uh, you know, hopefully our goal when we go through these psalms is not just to, you know, read a book of the Bible, but we're reading a, a book um, where David is writing about his relationship mm. um, to God, who is a shepherd, and God who leads him through every moment of his life. And hopefully we get a chance to know not just David through these psalms, but a chance to come to know David's Lord, the, the God of Israel, um, who's really the God of all of humanity. Mm, and right. so that's why it's such an incredibly beautiful uh, book to study. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in addition uh, to those objectives, we also want to match up uh, events that are happening in David's life with, with uh, what is being written in the book uh, so that we really understand the gravity of what, of what he is saying and what he has written. Uh, of course, as you mentioned, it's not just David. There's also Psalms in there. By we have even Moses. We have Asaph. 
we have uh, the sons of Korah, and even Solomon uh, are uh, additional authors to what we're going to go through. Moses. Uh, <laughs> Moses, yeah, how about that? And so we're, and we're also going to, uh, when appropriate, is touch on uh, the Christian perspective, what they would have us uh, believe, what sort of theological twists or trickery might be applied uh, in a Christian study Bible, for example, and just uh, concrete what, what the uh, Jewish perspective is. And we did a bit of that, didn't we, when in the 365 we did, but, we, but I'm sure it will be a little bit more comprehensive here in, uh, as we go through it chapter by chapter. Shall we begin? Is there anything else you'd like to add there, or shall we, be, we begin with chapter one? I think let's begin in the beginning, as they say. Let's begin in the beginning. Now, uh, as I said, when appropriate, we will uh, touch on the uh, Christian perspective, and therefore, I'm going to stick with my New King James Study Bible. Is that okay? That's perfectly fine. Now, before I even begin, Rabbi Skoback, most of the Psalms, if I'm correct, actually have a title formally written into them in the, in the uh, original Hebrew, not so with the first psalm. Is that correct? That's actually interesting. So, um, not all the psalms do. Quite a few don't. Um, but many of the psalms do have a superscription or a, a sort of introduction. You know, it'll say this is a song of so-and-so, and it's a, you know... Um, you know, they'll often indicate what kind of musical instrument was used, um, you know, in the introduction. So, there are many of the psalms will have some kind of introduction, um, and this one doesn't, and I think it's significant why it doesn't. Maybe we'll have a chance to touch on that. Um, but, yeah, we'll try to, uh, if we can, think about when it's relevant, you know, what instrument was used and why that instrument um, what hmm. event in David's life may have been uh, the, the event that prompted or was relevant to the psalm. Um, it's interesting, this psalm, according to rabbinic tradition, is probably the most important psalm in the whole book. And it, it may be why it's the first chapter. Um, and I think that the fact that there is no title and there is no, um, you know, there's no connection of this psalm to any particular person, meaning it doesn't say it's a psalm of David or it's for David. It's, it begins, Ashrei Ha'ish, um, fortunate or happy or praiseworthy. <laughs> there's so many ways of translating this word, Ashrei. It's actually, it, we could spend an hour discussing the translation. But most uh, Bibles you'll find have it as either happy or fortunate, or acclaimed, or praiseworthy, or blessed, or contented, or praised. Um, but so basically, it, it's speaking about the person, Haish, and it's generic, meaning that th this is really a message for all people. It's not something that's relevant specifically to David, and I think that's why there's no title here. And, um, and if you could wrap the whole uh, book of the Psalms up into a, a short chapter, this serves very nicely as an introduction uh, to the entirety, don't you think? I think more than that, actually. I think that this, this chapter is really a summary of the whole Bible, <laughs> basically. Oh, wow, okay. Well, let's get into it. In let me read ways, it and, yeah. and I'll let you unpack that. So, in, uh, in my New King James Study Bible, it begins with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful, of the scornful, but his delight is in, I'm going to use the word Torah, his delight is in the Torah of the Lord, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does, 
does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Michael. So, you know, it's pretty clear that the, the, the basic theme of this chapter is very easy to sum up. It contrasts the uh, righteous to the wicked and, and, you know, what makes them different and how their fates will be different. And um, what's interesting is that there are so many things that when you study the Bible in uh, translation, you don't get uh, that you really have in the Hebrew. And one thing is unusual about the beginning of this uh, chapter is that there is uh, um, a form of alliteration that you hear in the Hebrew words. It's interesting that it, it begins Ashrei Haish Asher Lo Halach Baatzat Rishaim. So you have the, the sh sound mm-hmm. in this first verse. It comes up. Uh, how many times does it come up? It comes up four times. Four, yeah. Ashrei Haish. Asher, the first three words right there. And then a few words later, it speaks about the Rishayim, the wicked. Mm-hmm. So some of the commentaries point out that, it, that the sh sound is probably one of the only universal sounds or, uh, or, or symbols in the entire world, meaning in every language, wherever you go, this will be understood. When people go shh, they're, they're, they're asking for attention. They're calling for quiet. And Unless so, you're from Ephraim and you're trying to cross a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story. Okay. So, I think that it's sort of, according to some of the commentaries, it's hinting at the fact that there's an important central message in this chapter. Mm. And so, the chapter begins with this, um, you know, audio alliteration asking us to, to listen carefully, to pay attention to the message here. And one of the things that I think I want to raise as a question now is, you know, it seems on some level that the message here is so simple and so obvious. You know, it's speaking about the great praises, or again, I mentioned that there are so many ways of translating ashray, happy is the man, or fortunate, or praised, or praiseworthy, or acclaimed, or blessed, or contented, or Mm. praised. But it, it's it, it's something that's really wonderful about this person. What's so wonderful? And we're told that they don't walk in the way of the wicked and they don't sit in the place of the sinners. That makes you so wonderful that you're not doing the most awful things in the world. And then it goes on to say, and what does he do? He's, you know, he, he's into the word of God. Now, the truth is that studying the Torah is something that really everyone is obligated to do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like that would make someone so incredibly special. So, I wanted to just raise that maybe as a question that we'll, we'll, we'll work our way through here in, in terms of what is this really getting at? What is the specialness of this person, you know, that they don't walk and hang out with all these horrible people and they, they happen to study the Bible. I mean, it seems like that could apply to half the free world. Right. Um, and yet the psalmist here is making a big deal out of this. Um, so what's interesting, another question th- that I would raise is that the psalm begins by telling us that what is so special about this person is that they have not walked in the counsel of the wicked, they have not uh, gone in the way of the sinners, they, st- they haven't stood in the way of the sinners, they haven't 
uh, taking his seat with the scoffers. Instead of really telling you what's special about this person, the the psalm begins by telling you what they haven't done. That's a strange way of uh, explaining why someone is special, why they are deserving of great praise. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's true that in the um, book of Psalms itself, later on in chapter um, 34, verse 15, David says, Sur meirah ve'aseh tov, turn aside from wickedness and do good. So, it may be that he's following that pattern here in the psalm, in that he begins with, you know, first, what are all the things that this person has not done? Meaning that it, it, it begins by telling you they haven't gone in the way of the wicked. You know, it, it's interesting that in chess, chess players know mm. that the most basic level of playing chess is first, don't blunder, right? Don't lose your pieces. Don't self-destruct. Don't get checkmated, right? And once you've not made all these mistakes, then you can focus on making good moves. Right. So the psalmist begins like that. He says, praiseworthy is the person who doesn't follow in the way of the wicked. That's verse number one. And verse number two, he says that this is a person that has embraced uh, the Torah of God. And that's doing the right thing. But it's much more than just someone who walks in the way of the Torah. It's really describing someone who's embraced the Torah on a much, much deeper level um because in in english uh i have his delight is in the exactly exactly meaning that this is a person who has made the torah the center of their life Mm. um and and they've embraced it and taken it in um you know rashi says something amazing here and and rashi is a commentary from around the uh, year 1000, he lived in France. Mm. He he wrote a commentary to the entire Bible. So he notices something interesting in verse two. Uh, the verse seems to be um, redundant, right? It says, "In the Torah of the Eternal is His desire." So what he seeks is the Torah of God, mm-hmm. and in His Torah he meditates day and night. Mm-hmm. Sort of a parallel. Uh, parallelism in the verse you know in the bible you'll often have this happen that the bible says the same thing in two different ways two different ways yeah um genesis 24 16 for example the bible says that rebecca was a virgin no man had known her yep. well they're saying the same thing in two ways so what rashi points out is interesting that verse two begins that in the torah of eternal the eternal meaning in the in, in the torah of god is his desire but then it goes on to say, but in his Torah, does he meditate day and night? And the Talmud says that really it begins by speaking about the Torah of God, God's Torah. But once a person immerses in the Torah and commits himself to a life of trying to really understand it, it becomes their Torah. So the verse describes the Torah in its second half of the verse as betorah to in his Torah, meaning that you could read it as his meaning the Torah of God. But the way the Talmud understands it is that it becomes his. It becomes the, the studier, the one that's seeking it, the one that desires it. Right. And, Interesting. Okay. And it goes much deeper because what it's really saying here is that the fortunate person or the blessed person or the praised person um, is the one who really takes the Torah and makes it part of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, they, ter- they totally internalize the Torah 
and they become a different person. Um, you know, there are people, a lot of people who study a lot and they know a lot, but they've never internalized the Torah. Right, there are scholars who know a lot, mm. but it never becomes part of them. You know, there's a there's a famous story where there's a young budding scholar, and he comes up to an old rabbi, and, and he boasts to the old rabbi, you know, Rabbi, I've gone through half the Talmud. There are 63 tractates of the Talmud, so he says, I've gone through half the Talmud, and the old rabbi says, Yes, but did it go through you? Meaning <laughs> that. It's not just a matter of knowing something intellectually. Um, it's a matter of internalizing something. That's why the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, I think it's verse 35, that you have to know, but then you have to take it to your heart. It's not enough just to know something intellectually. right? There are plenty of people who know it's wrong to steal, but mm. they'll steal anyway. Mm. It only becomes uh, something that's going to impact them when that knowledge becomes something they feel and they are not just aware intellectually that stealing is wrong, but they're emotionally repulsed by the idea. It, it mm. sickens them. Mm. And so what our sages speak about is a difference between what they call chachma and dat. Chachma is just knowledge. Dat is from the Hebrew word to know. Um, chachma really is more information, wisdom, meaning people that have a lot of information, have a lot of wisdom, they're smart, they know things. Mm. But people that have dot are people that in, in the Bible their experience. Right, because knowledge in the Bible, right? Adam knew his wife Eve. Knowledge is always the idea of connection. Mm-hmm. So there are people who know things, but they don't connect to it. Mm-hmm. And so the goal of really Torah learning is not just to learn the Torah, not just to master the information, but for the information to penetrate us and to change who we are. Um, and you know, it was interesting. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you just for a second because it's just one of that raises a conundrum that I can never wrap my brain around. That there are people, everyone knows people that know so much about a particular subject, and, and let's you know let's talk about the Torah, and yet it doesn't penetrate, and they have no problem with a ham sandwich. I I don't know how to let that settle in my head, and and, and what is it that uh, that uh, that allows the penny to drop? It just blows my mind thinking of it's one of those things that I often get caught up thinking about, and it frustrates me. Well, it doesn't just frustrate you. I mean, the the you know what is the focus and goal of so many of the um, moral teachers of Jewish history was exactly this question, meaning that. What they were bothered by was, you know, how do you actually change people? How do you get people to be different? And you take a book, for example, like the Mesilati Sharim, The Pathways of the Righteous. Mm-hmm. And that's the entire focus of the book. He says, interesting thing he says in the beginning. He says, when you study this book, he says, you will not learn one new thing. He says, there's no new information you're going to get in this book. He says, all the things I'm going to write about, you know already. Mm. He says, but the problem is that because they're so well known, we don't pay attention to them. We don't live our lives according to these teachings. Mm. And he says that his goal in the book is really to help you internalize the teachings so they become you, and it will impact the way you live. And so this psalm, interestingly, this chapter, this verse here, verse 2, is giving you the secret for how we can ensure that the Torah will penetrate us. Because there are two things, I think, I mean, I'm going to say at least two things, that can help the information penetrate who we are. Number one 
is diligence. That's what the author of the Mesilat Shirim, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, he says, how will this book help you? He says, not, you're not going to read it once and really change your life. He says, it's by constantly reviewing and repeating and rehearsing the information. When you study it over and over and over again, it's going to penetrate you. It's going to get into your guts. It's going to get into your bones and into your mm-hmm. blood. And actually, one of the great moralists in the 1800s, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, said that, that you know, in order to help the, the Torah get into your bones and get into your guts, he recommended chanting the Torah with, a, with powerful melodies, with tunes that are very gripping, because he understood the idea of the subconscious. He said that there are a lot of things that we have as part of our conscious uh, sort of conscious awareness Mm -hmm. but he says for something to get into your subconscious you have to really uh, have it confront not just your intellect but your emotions and he said when we sing something singing engages your emotions and it may be one of the reasons why the psalms were sung because when you sing something it's not just an intellectual exercise you're you're engaging your emotions as well. So Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, yeah, okay, yeah, he he recommended something called Musar Behispailus, which is which is engaging a text with incredibly powerful emotions and enthusiasm. So one thing that um, the Psalm here recommends is that right, you are diligent in studying the Torah day and night, meaning that one of the ways it can penetrate us is by being diligent and, and studying something over and over and over again. And when you study the same text, let's say, every day for two months, right? so you're doing it 60 times in a row, that begins to penetrate. It's interesting, Maimonides says something similar. He says that it's better to give, uh, let's say, a dollar of charity a hundred times than to just put a hundred dollars into the charity box. Mm. He says that when you put a hundred dollars into the charity box, it's one act of giving. But when you do it a hundred times, even though it's only a dollar, but you have a hundred separate acts of giving, mm. and that repetition and constant repetition, that begins to really help the behavior penetrate into who you are. So one thing the, the verse speaks about here is diligence in, in studying the Torah over and over and over again, day and night. And then the second part that will help us internalize the Torah is to cherish it, to connect with it emotionally by finding, as it says, it, it should become our delight, something that we seek passionately. And anything that we engage with passion and with delight, that's why in the olden days, when children began studying Torah as, as like, you know, five or six-year-old kids, they would either put candies into the book when the f- children first came, or they would even put some honey on the page. But they wanted to make studying Torah sweet so the kids would love it. And, uh, you know, that's part of what David is, sa- David is saying here in this psalm is that the person is someone that deserves praise and admiration and is blessed if they've engaged the Torah in this kind of deep way where it becomes part of who they are. So as the Talmud says, it starts off as God's Torah, Torah Hashem, the Torah of God, but then it becomes his Torah, the, the, the studier's Torah. Mm, because he's immersed in it, saying They are, yeah. I, I wanted to go back because we really didn't fully digest verse 1. Mm-hmm. And it could really take us years to really fully do verse 1. But what's interesting about verse 1 is that it has three different kinds of bad guys. 
and and I and I think different translations do justice to it in different uh, accu- different accuracy. Well, I'll tell you the three the three words that I have. Firstly, I've got ungodly sinners is the second, and the scornful is number three. What? How do you uh, render them? So the Hebrew is pretty precise. The first one that's spoken about is the reshaim or rasha. And the, the Russia, basically, in the Hebrew sense of the word, is speaking about someone who does wrong on purpose. They're, they do wrong intentionally. They know it's wrong. They do it anyway. They don't care. They're rebelling, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that it speaks about the counsel of, the, of these evil people, of these wicked people, because people that are really wicked on purpose, they make like a philosophy out of it, and they want to suck other people into them. They want people to join them. So it's saying those who don't walk in the counsel, the advice of these wicked people, because they want, they're very interested in having other people join them in their wicked activities. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could mean atzat rishaim, uh, the assembly of the wicked, not the advice or counsel. But it could be there's a gathering. But again, the, the, you see that these people like to associate with other you know, like-minded criminals. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is not just these three levels of wickedness, but also how they're described. So one is to walk. Right, We're, Walking mm-hmm. is associated with the counsel of the wicked. And then it speaks about the chataim. Now, this is not really the same level of wickedness. Uh, a chait in Hebrew in the Bible a chait is a mistake, and it's usually referring to someone that sins unintentionally, meaning not that they didn't intend to do what they're doing, but they weren't aware that it was wrong. They were ignorant. So these are people is, is who... There, does that, is, is there a connotation of carelessness as well there? Yes. Okay. They're, they're careless in that they... Not that they didn't know what they were doing, but they were careless in that they didn't know that it shouldn't have been done. Meaning that it's basically... It's they should have known better. They should have known better, exactly. Um, in, in the book of Leviticus, for example, chapter 4, the whole chapter is dealing with the sin offering, the offering that were brought by these, uh, this person who committed a chait, which is an unintentional sin. So, for example, the rasha, the evil person spoken about first, mm-hmm. the one that knows it's wrong. So, for example, the rasha would be someone who knows it's wrong to steal, and they go and ahead and that's why steal. they do it. They do it intentionally. Okay, yeah. As yeah, opposed or to the, the careless or, person who should have known better, and they've picked something up and taken it, which wasn't theirs. Right, So, or it could be, let's say, the person who knows that you shouldn't you know, cook on the Sabbath. Cooking is forbidden, according to biblical law. But they do it anyway. They say, I, don't care, I don't care if God prohibit, prohibits it. I'm going to do it anyway. The, the sin person, the sinful person, is the one who either didn't know it was wrong to cook on the Sabbath, or they knew that they shouldn't cook on the Sabbath, but they didn't realize today was Saturday. They thought today was Sunday. So it's just a matter of ignorance, and it could also apply to the person who was overtaken by their impulse. So it's not that they really wanted to rebel against God. It's just that they were, (laughs) you know, their impulse got the better of them. Mm -hmm. They, They weren't really someone who was looking to do the wrong thing. So it seems that the second phrase is describing someone who's less really wicked than the first person. And here it speaks about standing in their way. So it's mm-hmm. not speaking about walking with them, but it's standing. Lo Amma doesn't stand with them. 
And the last category is the Moshav Leitzim. Now, that's a hard one to translate. Usually, Leitzim are scoffers, people who are not serious, people who take everything as a joke. They are cynical. They're clowns. They make fun of everything. But interestingly, these are people that haven't, are not being described as people doing the wrong thing, meaning that these are people that may have never even done the wrong thing, but they make light of everything, and they are jokers, and they're scoffers, and they are cynical. Um, and so th- this might be the, 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 the sort of the, the weakest level of sin. And here it describes their uh, gathering. In a, in a place of these latesim, he does not sit with them. And uh, one commentary, though, the Ibn Ezra, who lived probably uh, in the 1100s, I think. Mm-hmm. So he says that the word latesim here, latesim is the word, is related to the word melitz. Melitz, if you go to the story of Joseph, when it speaks about Joseph speaking, um, but having an interpreter, because the brothers supposedly didn't know it was Joseph, or they didn't know it was Joseph, and so they were speaking Hebrew, and he spoke Egyptian. Mm-hmm. They had to have an interpreter between them. So the word melitz in that story is an interpreter, and here Ibn Ezra says that leitzim is related to that, and he says that that the leitz here is someone who, like an interpreter, is someone who conveys information, meaning they're a uh, a, a teller of tales. They peddle tales, um, and that's why it speaks about it as a gathering of these tale tellers. But they're basically people who like to gossip. So, you know, in, in Jewish thought, this is actually not innocent. I mean, it may be innocent to be a joker, but to be someone who gossips about other people is actually considered to be pretty bad. So we're not quite sure exactly who the late sim are, but uh, another question aside from who these people are is the uh, actions that, that are ascribed to what we're avoiding. So the, the psalmist here speaks about three things, to go, to stand, and to sit. But it's all in the past tense. So it doesn't say that the, the person is blessed or praised that doesn't go in the way of the wicked and doesn't, uh, you know, isn't, isn't sitting in the, in the place of the uh, scoffers. But it's really in the past tense that they haven't walked. Now, again, most English translations won't pick this tense up, but all the words are in the past tense, that they haven't uh, walked, they haven't stood, they haven't sat. So it's really describing a regular pattern of behavior, um, and that's what's being avoided. It's it's the person, not just a matter of that he didn't go once or he didn't stand once. This is a regular pattern of behavior that the 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 worthy person, the praiseworthy person, um, you know, avoided. And the one last thing I want to just raise is. To think about, is there any order in these three um, kinds of uh, avoided behaviors? And some commentaries point out that they're really going up in degrees of attachment and investment. I mean, there are certain people that, you know, you might meet, but you would never consider sitting down with them at a meeting or even walking with them to have a meeting. I mean, there are certain people that... Um, you know, you wouldn't have to be with. Yeah, you wouldn't hang out with them. But mm. you know what? You may n- never sit with them at a meeting. That's a real investment of time. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the last category. Those were the scoffers that you didn't sit with at their meeting place. Um, and then there's 
someone else that forget about not sitting with them, you would certainly wouldn't even um, stand with them. Meaning you're not going to even stand. Yeah, you're not going to hang out with them and, you know, mm-hmm. stand uh, next to a tree and, and, sp- and talk to them. So that's a little bit less of an investment. You know, not only will you not, you know, sit with them at a meeting, you're not even going to stand with them at some place. But there are certain people that, you know, okay, you may not sit down with them at a meeting or stand in, in a place with them. But maybe while you're walking, you'll let them walk with you and, and you'll be exposed to that. So – According to this way of looking at it, the, the three people are listed in terms of more and more and more of an investment in time and attention. So it begins with those people who you're, you, don't, you wouldn't even walk with, and then it speaks about those you wouldn't stand with, and then those you wouldn't sit down with at a meeting. Other people say that it's going down in degrees of passivity, so it speaks about the most active form of engagement, which is walking. And then it speaks about not walking with someone but standing. And then finally, the least active is just sitting. And so it's not really clear exactly because it's interesting how you have three examples here, three different kinds of sinners, three different kinds of activities. Mm. Are these in any order? Um, Is there a message in terms of the order? It's sort of open for a lot of interpretation. But we'll move on now to verse 3 finally. Well, yeah, but uh, I mean, having unpacked it like that, I had never considered if, if that would be the case. And having you unpack it like that, it does seem to be much more intentional. Um, and I've never considered that, so thank you. Now, verse 3, I'm just going to read it again. It says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that, the, uh, that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. And it reminds me, Michael, of the, um, if, if I may read uh, from Joshua chapter 1, because I think it kind of elaborates uh, verse 3. And if I read from, uh, let's say, verse 7, it says, Only be strong and very courageous, that he may observe and uh, do according to all the Torah, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the left or hand or to the, or to the right, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. There it is again, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, this uh, chapter of Psalms is recapitulating exactly Hmm. what God says to Joshua there. And uh, again, both of these verses are speaking about, you know, the the great success that will come to someone who follows this prescription. Now, it's interesting that verse 1 really spoke about this person that's that's really going to be blessed and I think there it's really speaking more in spiritual terms, and it could be that when it speaks here in verse 3 about the person being prosperous and successful, it may say here not just spiritually are they going to be blessed, which was the verse 1, but here even in material matters, physical matters, they're going to be successful in that part of their life hmm. as well. It's interesting that Rashi again points out here that there are two words in Hebrew for planting. It speaks about here that the righteous will be like a tree that's, that's planted by uh, rivers of water. Mm-hmm. And the, the real word in Hebrew for planting is natua. To, to plant something is natua, to, when, you, when you put seeds in the ground. Mm-hmm. But the word shatul is really the word for transplanting, not for planting. 
So there's a difference, right? When you plant something, you you know put seeds in the ground and maybe a tree will grow. But when you transplant a sapling, for example, mm-hmm. you already have a small tree yep. and it's already taken root. And now you're going to basically pick it up from where it is and you're going to replant it, mm-hmm. transplant it into even a more appropriate place for it to grow. And that's what the, the psalmist is saying here, that for the righteous person that's been living a life of embracing the Torah, they will be not just like a tree that's planted in a place of water, which is the best place for it, obviously, but they'll be like a tree that's been transplanted. And the, um, the, the, the tree imagery, by the way, is very, very important because the Torah speaks about, the, the, the scriptures speak about the Torah being like a tree of life. So this this comparison, this uh, metaphor, really, of the uh, person who is uh, tied to the Torah, we describe the person himself like a tree, is, is important. And um, it speaks about not just the person who has, um, you know, stability in life because they're planted near uh, these rivers of water. Water, by the way, is also, the Torah is compared to water in the Bible mm. as well. Mm. Um, but it's really describing, uh, you know, the fact that this person has uprooted themselves. Really, when it's not necessarily saying that it's happened, that this person has been transplanted. It's really describing someone, that this person is someone that uproots themselves to put themselves in That's an optimal beautiful. place, right? Doesn't that put you straight back to, uh, to Abraham when God said to him, get up, leave this place, and go to a place that I will show you? Right, to a place where you're going to be able to, to, to yeah. thrive. So the, the, the righteous person here, how did they become righteous? Well, part of it is that they had to uproot themselves from any place where they're not going to thrive, and they had to not just from place, but really they had to uproot themselves from focusing on the superficial drives that we have for the material, meaning that we're so easily drawn to the physical and the material and superficial things like honor and fame and glory, the righteous person has to uproot themselves from focusing on these superficial things and planting themselves or replanting themselves in a more spiritual realm, not just in a place that's spiritual, but in a in a headspace that's spiritual. Mm. And um, you know, I, I tell a story that when I was in uh, Yeshiva University, they there was uh, we had a phys ed requirement. We had to take a phys ed class, and one of the mm. options was that they had a, a brilliant Hebrew teacher named Chaim Sober. He, I think he's still there. And not only did he teach Hebrew, but he was like an eighth-degree black belt in karate. Oh, cool. He, he was quite amazing. And yeah. uh, I wasn't a very good attender of his class, but he gave a, a martial arts exhibition each year mm-hmm. where one of the things that they demonstrated was a technique called rooting, R-O-O-T-I-N-G. And they would take this very tiny, minuscule little student, like an 80-pounder, and they would stand with their feet spread out a bit, and they would do some breathing, and they would basically get rooted in the ground. And uh, then they would get five or six huge students, like the biggest students they could find. And they would just have these five huge students just trying to push the, the little tiny student over. Mm-hmm. And they would huff and puff, and they would push and push. They couldn't budge the person. And for me, it was very powerful to see this because you know it, it illustrated for me that if a person is deeply rooted spiritually – 
they won't get knocked over easily by all the things in life that you know could could easily challenge people and blow them over. Mm. Um, I'm familiar with uh, with what he's saying. My boys have done karate, and uh, one of the very first things that they they practice is a proper stance um, by which they they stand, as you say, with their feet apart, just a little, legs bent, just a little. Breathing arms in in such a way so that you are you're standing in the strongest possible way so that as you say they don't get pushed over it's um it's a beginner's technique and a very necessary one yeah to do the the rooting technique is uh it takes a little bit of practice to learn that mm. um, <laughs> when I was in Australia years and years ago, I actually told this story to uh, a Jewish high school class there was a a, a a gathering of about four or five hundred, the whole school gathered, and I was given like ten minutes to speak to the school. So I told the story, and everyone was laughing their heads off, and I, I didn't know what was going on, like what was so funny. So after the class, I went over to the headmaster, and I said, why were the students laughing? I said, well, in Australia, rooting is a slang for losing your virginity. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. They should have briefed me before I came to Australia. So we might have said... <laughs> so funny you should bring that up because as soon as you said that i thought okay that means something different here um, <laughs> so we might we might say grounding because that's what really that's what it is you're grounding yes. yourself you're 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 very very aware with the connection that you have with the earth in a way that that takes advantage of gravity really uh, to your advantage right and so that's really what what the the verse here is describing is describing this you know, a righteous person is someone that's deeply grounded, d- deeply rooted in the spiritual realm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it goes on to say that, you know, they're going to give their fruit in season, um, which truly can be many things. It could really speak about there'll be people who will be able to share their wisdom with other others, meaning that the fruit they produce, it's not just that they have this vibrant tree, but they have fruit that can be shared with other people. And you could look at the fruit as symbolic of the fact that their wisdom will produce good deeds, meaning that there'll be fruit, meaning there'll be fruit, there'll be uh, something to show for all of the Torah they've imbibed. Um, And if you go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, around Mm -hmm. verse 8, it describes the righteous person very similarly as someone who's able to produce these fruits. And then it speaks about, and their leaf will never wither. Now, it's really a collective noun like when you speak about a tree's fruit it's not one fruit it's the all the fruit on the tree so here it really speaks about the leaves but the hebrew you know is expressed as a collective noun the leaf that never withers or never shrivels and the talmud says what is the leaf meaning if the fruit are the good deeds of the righteous person um they say that the leaves of this tree Mm -hmm. are their worldly discussions meaning that uh, people that are righteous like this, their mind is basically in the Torah, in the the world of the spiritual. Mm. But even people like that, when they have what seem to be mundane discussions, uh, they're also on a different level. So, you know, if you listen to the speech, the regular speech of people that are refined, it's just different than other people. They they. Uh, their speech is usually elevated. It's it's first of all neg- never negative. They never, uh, you know, speak negatively of others. They never, you know, uh, say things that are inappropriate. But even their mundane everyday speech is elevated, and mm. it, there's something beautiful about it. And that's what 
he's saying here in the psalm that even their leaves will not shrivel up or wither. Let me elaborate on that because, um, as you mentioned, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 8, uh, says he should be like a, a, a tree planted by the waters which spread out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes but its leaf will be green. And it reminds me of, uh, uh, I mean, a, a decent uh, lawn of grass. If you don't have enough water uh, to, to, to water your, your lawn, your grass in the summer, when, when the sun is shining on it all day, is going to wither it. And it's going to go kind of, you know, just uh, a pale sort of green because, you know, the tips of the grass are going to dry out. They're going to go brown, whatever. They're going to dry out. But if, if there is sufficient water, even though you may have really, really hot, burning hot days, what you're going to end up with is beautiful, lush, dark green, a dark green uh, uh, lawn. And uh, I'm sure the same uh, for leaves as well. If you have sufficient water, then the, the strength of the sun is only going to improve the quality of the plant. Which is a beautiful way of expressing you know, how the, the, the righteous person you know, is just verdant in terms of their... Uh, you know, not how they just present themselves, but in terms of what's inside of them as well. They there's can a, weather the storm. They can take the heat, so to speak. Yes. And, you know, l- we know life is like that. There's mm. plenty of curveballs that come our way during our lifetime. Mm. And all those people that were discussed in the first verse, right, that even the righteous person, they still have to dodge, the, the, you know, everyone else that's out there that's going to try and drag them down. You know, it, it's it's not easy to isolate yourself, right? You know, it's not usually, you know, especially in Jewish societies, we don't have hermits. You know, it's much easier to pull this off when, you know, you're a hermit. As a matter of fact, there's a very famous story that's told about the Vilna Gaon, the great, great prodigy and genius from Vilna. His name was Elijah of Vilna, lived about 300 years ago. He was someone who knew all of Torah on the deepest levels, and he had a friend who was called the Magad of Dubno. He was a, a, a storyteller. He would go around preaching and telling stories, and he would really give people reproof. And so the Vilna Gon once said to him, uh, you know, give me some musar. Tell, tell me off. You know, tell me something that I'm not doing right. He says, I'm going to tell you. I mean, you're the greatest person in the, for hundreds of years. No one was like you. And so the Vilna Gaon insisted, you know, that he, that, you know, the, that the Magad of Dumna tell him something, tell him off in some way. Mm-hmm. So he finally said, look, he said, it's no big trick to be you because you're locked up in a tower. You don't go out. You don't mix with people. You're studying 23 and a half hours a day. So to become the Vilna Gaon isn't such a big trick. You know, if you were someone who you know, spent their whole day, you know, among the people and, you know, having to deal with all the people in the world, you know, it wouldn't be such a, you know, easy to pull off what you've pulled off. And in one version of the story, the Vilnagon says to him, well, I'm not a magician, you know, I can't, it's not so easy to do that. And, but it's unusual. Most of us, most of us can't live an isolated life. And so the, righteous person that does plant themselves or transplant themselves into a place that's deeply rooted where there's a lot of water for them, they have to still, you know, avoid all of these challenges uh, that can easily knock them off their game. Um, and that's really the challenge. Mm. So in, in verse four, the, the, the psalmist tries to contrast 
the deeply rooted, um, you know, sort of productive, uh, righteous person to mm. the evil ones, to the evil people. He says that they will be like the husks or chaff that are driven away by the wind. Um, you know, when you have wheat, the chaff is what protects the wheat. And when you thresh the wheat, the chaff basically blows away because it has no real substance. Um, so that's the imagery here for the wicked people, for the people who are, you know, really not striving to grow spiritually and really, in this case, describing someone who is a consciously wicked, that they have no substance. And as opposed to the righteous person who is deeply rooted and who will thrive and who will produce, this person is has no substance whatsoever and they just get blown away in the winds because there's nothing really there. Um, it's a very stark comparison. Can I interrupt you? Because I'm looking at uh, verse 4 and 5. Again, uh, we have uh, standing in judgment in verse 5. At the end of verse 5, we have uh, the word congregation again, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now, we have congregational counsel in verse 1. We have standing in verse 1. And then it goes on to talk about, uh, in verse 1, it says, nor sits in the seat of scornful. Is there anything in verse 4 that would parallel to that in any way, thereby um, picking up some sort of intentional parallel here from verse 1 to verse 4. What's well, funny because the, the psalm begins with these three categories of mm-hmm. you know, negative people, but they really drop the scornful people. The, that one gets lost, and the psalmist only really speaks later on about the wicked people who are intentional right. sinners and the um, chataim, the, the, the sort of unintentional sinners. Uh-huh. So, um, and it's interesting that the words in Hebrew are similar but not the same, meaning that when it speaks about the, the assembly of the wicked, it's called atzat, atzat rishaim, an assembly of the wicked. Mm-hmm. But in verse 5, when it speaks about the assembly of the righteous, it's adat, a community, really. Mm-hmm. And Ada is a community. So the words are similar, atzat and adat. I, I never saw them really contrasted in the commentaries, but there are so many uh, words that, that this happens with in the psalm. I, I didn't make mention of this earlier, but one of the things that happens is that um, it's interesting that we speak about not going in the atzat rishaim, the advice or the counsel of the mm-hmm. wicked in the verse verse. Now, it speaks about the um, righteous people in verse 3 as like a tree, an eights. So there's almost a contrast between the counsel of the wicked and the righteous that is compared to an eights, a tree. Mm-hmm. So we, these words in Hebrew are very similar. Eitsa is advice or counsel, and eights is a tree. Right, okay. So again, in English, this would never ever come up, but the, if you're sensitive to the Hebrew forms, there are a lot of Hebrew uh, similarities uh, and contrasts that really are, I think, very pregnant. Uh, for exploration. Um, It just depends on how deeply you want to go into the psalm. No, no, that's Uh, okay. No, I was just curious. That is interesting, though. And also, just the imagery of that. Um, A a tree spreads out its its branches, its its leaves. You find shade under a tree. People gather under a tree, and they talk, and there's your counsel, perhaps. Yes, for sure. In verse 5, right, it speaks about the... the congregation of the righteous, right? Because you're right, if 
we're like a tree that has this shade and has these fruits, it is the kind of place where people will gather. Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting. Commentaries have a hard time understanding verse 5. What does it mean here when it says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment and the sinful in the, uh, the congregation of the righteous? So, one explanation is that, you know, when the final judgment of mankind takes place, uh, what it's saying is that the people who are sinful will not be able to blend in with the righteous people. You know, they may think that they could sort of get by by blending in. There's a great story that's told about a teacher that's going to give a final exam to his class, and he has to go out of town, so he, he hires a proctor. And the students are all assembled in this big room, and the proctor gives the instructions that was left by the teacher. The proctor says, look, the teacher explained that you're going to have exactly one hour to write this exam. He says, uh, you have to be finished in an hour. He says, if you take longer than an hour, then you're going to be failed. He says, I'm going to give you a 10-minute warning, and then I'm going to give you a 5-minute warning, but then I'm going to tell you the time is up, and you have to put down your pens, otherwise you will be failed. So he gives the tests out to all the students, and uh, they're all writing. And then finally, after 50 minutes, he says, okay, you have a 10-minute warning, and everyone's writing really fast now. And five minutes later, okay, it's five minutes to go, and everyone's really writing quickly. And he says, okay, after 60 minutes are up, pens down, and everyone puts their pens down. And they slowly begin walking up to the front of the room and to give the proctor their test. And there's one fellow in the back of the room that's still writing. And he's going for another five, six, seven, eight, nine minutes. Mm -hmm. And he's very casual. And after everyone's left the room, he just sort of saunters up to the proctor and he hands the proctor his exam. Mm -hmm. And the proctor says, are you kidding? He says, I gave very clear instructions that you only have 60 minutes and I'm going to give you two warnings, and you can't spend one second more than 60 minutes, and if you do, you're going to be failed. So he says, uh, I'm going to have to tear up your exam. So the student says to him, excuse me, don't you know who I am? And the proctor says, no, I have no idea who you are. And the student says, you mean you don't know me? You don't know my name? And the, teacher, the proctor says, no, I have no idea who you are. So the student takes his exam, and he quickly puts it in the middle of the pile of all the other papers, and he leaves. <laughs> So, 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 so that's what the that's what the sinful people might be thinking that you know okay I didn't do too well in my lifetime, but you know at the end of time we'll all stand up in front of God and I'll be able to sort of sneak in and blend in with the righteous people. No, it's just, it's not going to work like that. That's what it says here. Um, that was very funny. It's interesting. That also, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that that's great. <laughs> now, what is this? Let me throw something in here because again, it takes me back to Jeremiah seventeen because Jeremiah adds the element of heat. It adds the sun. It adds the heat. And and I suppose all things are exposed when light. I mean, in a dark room, we're all the same. But as soon as the light is switched on, uh, we know who everyone is. And uh, therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. So the judgment uh, is is the light of Torah, I suppose, shone upon everybody, and we know who's who. Well, and, and we know the Almighty certainly knows who is who. Mm. So, right, when at the end of time, uh, you know, everyone's faults will be very clear and evident uh, to the judge. And, um, you know, also there's an idea here that for the righteous people, the people that are truly righteous, they really form a holy community. They do have this community among themselves. But mm -hmm. 
people that are the opposite, people that lived wicked lives, they usually are like very isolated. They don't mm. have, you know, real friends. You know, their friends are usually fair-weathered friends, and they, they basically will find themselves very isolated and scattered. They won't have a community. Um, they won't really have anything that that's solid to hold them up at the end of time. And the the psalm concludes by saying that um, because God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will be lost, to be lost. Now, when it says that God knows the righteous, it doesn't mean that God recognizes them. Um, really, again, what, it, what it's saying here is this word to know in biblical Hebrew is to be connected. Mm. And so what it's saying really here is that God is connected to the righteous people, but God is disconnected from the wicked people, meaning God is, just has no relationship to them, has nothing to do with them. You know, there's a famous question that's asked in the Genesis story when God curses the snake and says, upon your belly you will crawl and you'll eat the dust of the ground. So some of the commentaries say, that's not so terrible. I mean, he'll have food in front of him every single day. <laughs> no, no worries. You know, right. if he's eating dirt and he's crawling in the dirt, he's got a full refrigerator in front of him every day, 24 <laughs> hours a day, seven days a week. And so they explain that that's exactly the curse, that basically he'll have no need to snake. There'll be no need to ever, you know, expressed any kind of uh, help from God, they'll be basically cast out. God is saying, basically, look, I want nothing to do with you. So here's your full refrigerator. Leave me alone. I, I want no connection to you. So what it's really saying here is that at the end of time, it's going to turn out that God is connected, not just recognizes, but God is connected to the righteous, but disconnected from the wicked. It ignores mm -hmm. them, has nothing to do with them. And that's really what eternity is like, meaning people will either be strongly connected to God for eternity, or they'll be very loosely connected, if connected at all. Um, you know, th they describe uh, the world to come sometimes. I, I shared with you one story in a Woodstock discussion, but they, they have another metaphor for heaven and hell. They say heaven and hell is the same place. It's basically this big house of study, and all you do in the next world is you're sitting with God and you're studying, studying scripture, studying the Torah. Mm -hmm. So for people from who that was important during their lifetime, that's going to be bliss. I mean, mm -hmm. During my whole lifetime, I got to meet some great teachers and great sages and great you know, friends to study with, but now I'm studying with God. You know, it doesn't mm. get better than that. But for people that didn't care about that at all during their lifetime and they were pursuing uh, things that were meaningless, so to be stuck in heaven forever and ever at a class with God, that's going to be torture. So that's what it's really describing here, that the people who dedicated their lives to internalizing the Torah, for them, God will rec not recognize them, God will be connected to them for eternity. But for the wicked people who again, didn't really plant any spiritual roots at all, they'll basically be disconnected. Um, and what will happen is that the Russia, the wicked people, will realize that they wasted their life, mm. meaning that they, they lost their life. It was all meaningless. They sold themselves short. Um, we say on Yom Kippur, by the way, on the Day of Atonement, one of the mm. things that we say in the confessional prayers is we confess to the fact uh, that, uh, you know, there was so much that we robbed, we, we, we robbed, we, we stole. And it's not talking about stealing from other people. It's talking about stealing from ourselves, that we rob from ourselves when we don't live properly. We're only cheating ourselves. 
And so that's what's going to be the, the realization of the wicked people in, in, for eternity that they just wasted their lives. They could have accomplished so much in this lifetime to build themselves uh, you know, a connection to God, which is what's going to be their eternity. You know, mm. the, the eternal life in the hereafter is, you know, is not, uh, you know, playing marbles. It's not uh, pigging out on some ice cream. You know, it's not a physical <laughs> existence. It's a very spiritual existence mm. that, you know, you have to learn to appreciate. You know, it's like for people who never learned how to appreciate, you know, beautiful music, you know, people have no clue, let's say, about classical music it's going to be torturous to sit through classical music people that have spent time trying to learn how to appreciate it it's it's glorious it's magnificent mm. so i think that's really the the message of the psalm and i think when it comes to um pondering and and contemplating you know what is one of the major messages of Christianity in terms of their theology, ah. um, you know, I think that what this psalm is teaching is something very um, different, right? This psalm is basically saying that we can be transformed and redeemed by devoting ourselves to the Torah. That's, that's you know, exactly what it says. Verse 1 and verse 2 tells us uh, exactly that. And, and it's interesting, uh, for the most part, my New King James Study Bible leaves this psalm alone in, in the cross-referencing and the, uh, uh, the study notes underneath. It really uh, doesn't want to make too many connections uh, or relate it back to the, uh, to the New Testament until, Michael, and this is obviously the best they could do, when we get to verse 6, that he just talked about, then we have a study note that says, the Bible speaks of two ways, only one of which leads to God. So far, so good, right? The next sentence says, this is a consistent biblical theme, culminating in the celebrated words of Jesus, I am the way. And the reason why they put that there is because of the wording in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And that seems to be all they can do with it, Michael. Well, I mean, it, it's it's an attempt, I think, to squeeze the, mm. this Christian um, message into this psalm. But I think it's a square peg into a round hole because it would seem that the, the, the message that even this footnote is saying here in the King James Study Bible is that, you know, the way to uh, fulfillment and the way towards... Uh, you know, real connection to God is only through Jesus. I mean, that's the, at least among evangelical Christians, that's the basic message, that no one comes to the Father except for the Son. And, uh, you know, the, the basic message is that there's nothing that you can actually do in your life that will bring you salvation and redemption, meaning it's all not what you do, it's all what God did through you by having his Son die on the cross for you. And it's only by connecting yourself to that vicarious sacrifice and Jesus as the path to God, that's the only way to redemption. And and the opposite is someone who is not connected to Jesus and therefore won't be connected to God. Now, the the message throughout the New Testament, especially Paul's message in the book of Romans, is that it's impossible to be righteous. Everyone is wicked, Paul says. Mm. There are no righteous. And one of the themes that comes out very strongly, it's ironic, by the way, because it's both in Psalms and in Proverbs, mm. which are the two books that are attached to the back of the New Testament. But in both of those books, one of the themes, it's a meta-theme, is that there are righteous people in the world and there are wicked people in the world. 
and the the mandate of the Bible, the, the marching orders of the Bible is telling us, you should be one of the righteous, don't be one of the wicked. Mm. And the, the Bible, the Tanakh at least, never gives us the Christological way of becoming one of the righteous, meaning it never says that there's no way of being righteous and that you can only achieve righteousness by having uh, you know, the, the Son of God live in your heart uh, because you can't do it. The, the, the Bible is very clear in that God gave the Torah specifically for the purpose of teaching us how we can be righteous. That's mm. the entire, the word Torah itself means teaching, instructions. Mm. And so this psalm is basically saying that, no, you can be a righteous person by, by essentially embracing the Torah, seeking the Torah, seeking to internalize the Torah, and when you internalize the path that God set out for you, when you embrace the path that God set out and the Torah that God provided for us, you will be considered a righteous person and will be blessed uh, in this world and in the next world. So, to me, what is very obvious here is that the entire message of the psalm doesn't fit in at all with the message of the church. The church is basically telling us that every person is born a miserable sinner. We are not capable of being good. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Um, and they explain, by the way, I mean, at least in, in Protestant, Lutheran, Pauline Christianity, they explain mm. the Torah was only given to show us how filthy we are, to show us how dirty we are, that the Torah, they say is like a mirror, and when you look into the mirror, you see how filthy you are, and it will drive you to the cross. It'll force you to embrace God's... And, and doesn't that fly in the face of the first three verses that we just read? Tremendously. I mean, I think that in many ways, you know, someone once said, very interesting, I, I forget who said this, it may have been uh, Thomas Jefferson, but someone said that the, the greatest polemic against Christianity is the Jewish Bible. And, uh, you know, I think that as we go through the Psalms, we're going to see that they have a message, they have a teaching, they have a point of view. And I don't believe the point of view really is consistent with the theological point of view or perspective of, uh, you know, evangelical Christianity. Um, so I think that this is, you know, a very short psalm. It's only six verses. But I think it's very powerful because it's packed with this message about the Torah being potent and the Torah mm. being, uh, you know, the way in which we can be considered righteous by God and we can achieve uh, eternal life and uh, salvation and redemption. Mm. Um, and there's no implication here. There's no hint here that, you know, I'm sorry, boys and girls, the Torah is nice, but it's not going to work. It's not going to do it for you. You're going to have to have, you know, God send his son in to die for you uh, in order for you know, to you for you to make it into the next world. Um, so I, I think that that's what, for me, comes out very clearly in this psalm. Thank you very much, my friend. Rabbi Michael Skoback, it's wonderful to be uh, have you back on the program. I look forward to doing this again when we get into Psalm Chapter 2. Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Again, thank you, my friend. And until next time, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word. Shalom. I didn't know if I should have shared that story about uh, losing your virginity. <laughs> but I have to say, when it happened to me, 
I, I told the story and I said the word rooting three times. And the, you, had, you had about 700 kids that were just losing it. They were laughing so hard. And I was mystified. I couldn't understand what was so funny. So the principal very sheepishly, you know, he, he very sheepishly said, well, see, in, here in Australia, it, it's a... Yeah. <laughs> so, it always pays to check out the colloquial expressions of the country before you go, before you go there and talk. <laughs> All right.